This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. On January 7, 2023, a young man by the name of George Santos was sworn in as a new U.S. congressman from New York. He first made news by winning as a Republican in an area that used to run blue. But now he's mostly known as the guy who fabricated his life story. He said he was Jewish. He now admits he isn't. He said he once worked for Goldman Sachs and Citigroup. He didn't. He claimed he attended Baruch College and NYU. He didn't go to college at all. He claimed he went to prep high school in the Bronx. Not true. This is more than padding a resume. George Santos created an entire new life for himself. What makes a person do that? While Santos may not have broken any laws, he did mislead the people who voted for him. Well, 10 years ago, I met a man who misled people over and over again in the highest echelons of society and more. Over a span of 30 years, he created several new identities, each more elaborate than the last. And he tried to commit the ultimate scam, getting away with murder. You're about to hear his story. Because we always start this way with an interview. Could you introduce yourself saying, I am? No, no, no. Everybody knows who I am. <laughs> well, who are you? I don't think everybody does know who you no, are. No, 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 no. Why is that so hard for you to... Say your name. Because so many persons know me under different names, and I don't want to make anyone uncomfortable. What should I call you? Gee, that's always a good question. I don't, I don't, I don't know, Aaron. What would you like to call me? He had gone by the name of Christopher Chichester of San Marino, California, Christopher Crow of Greenwich, Connecticut, Charles Chip Smith, and the most audacious identity of all... Clark Rockefeller, you know, of the New York Rockefellers. 
He could fool anyone. He was brilliant. He was diabolical. When a Rockefeller appeared in my life and wanted to be my friend, it was, well, look at me now. You know, this isn't a story that makes me look that great. Walter Kern. You may not recognize his name, but you do know his work. He's a novelist who wrote Up in the Air, a book about a corporate downsizer, which was made into a hit movie in 2009, starring George Clooney. Walter Kern went to Princeton, then Oxford. In other words, he's smart and no pushover. He's one of the last people I would think could ever be scammed. But that's exactly what happened. I'm a journalist and a novelist, so you'd think that I was the kind of guy who would see through someone like him. The fact was I never did. Until one day in 2008, when he turned on the TV. One day I turn on the news, there's Clark Rockefeller's picture. There is still no sign of Clark Rockefeller and his seven-year-old daughter, Ray. And I thought, oh boy, he finally snapped. The man Kern had known for years as Clark Rockefeller was in the middle of a custody dispute with his ex-wife and had taken off with their seven-year-old daughter. But that wasn't the only shocking news. A few days later, the Rockefeller family came out and said, he's not one of us. We do not know who this man is. He's not Clark Rockefeller. There is no record of any Clark Rockefeller as a descendant of John D. Rockefeller. I was like, what? Drip, drip, drip. The details came out as to who he really was. Kern's friend wasn't a Rockefeller at all. He wasn't even born in the U.S. Los Angeles homicide detectives identify this man as Christian Gerhardt's writer from Bergen, Germany. Police say that you are a con artist, a con man. Now, what do you I call con? yourself? Who did I con? If not uh, a con artist, what would you call yourself? Steve Podrowski is, is an absolute literary genius. He came up with the word um, confabulator. Confabulations, harmless inventions of fun that don't really hurt anyone. So you don't believe you hurt anyone? I don't think so. That's what Garrett Schreider says. Although I think when you hear more of his story, you may disagree. My conversation with Gerhard Schreider took place inside an empty L.A. County courtroom in 2013, after his trial, not for fraud or any scam. He was on trial for murder. Because as it turns out, Gerhard Schreider had been hiding more than just his true identity. He was also a suspect in the murders of a California couple. I'm Erin Moriarty, and this is my life of crime. We begin in the early 1980s when a young Garrett Schreider moved to the city of San Marino, California. It was a sort of an Andy Hardy existence. Like a wealthy Mayberry? Well, that could be. <laughs> you knew him by what name? Christopher Chichester the 13th. The 13th what? 13th baronet of <laughs> England, yeah. Garrett Schreider had shown up in San Marino calling himself Christopher Chichester. He was 20 years old and had a very convincing, posh English accent. He was a I church didn't... of our savior a lot. Well, it's the oldest church in the area. He had done his research and picked a church of all places to charm his way into society. After all, how many people would question the word of a guy they met in church? And he was passing out hymnals, going to the free lunches, and joining the city club, and meeting all the regulars. 
That's author Mark Seal. He later wrote a book about Garrett Schreider called The Man in the Rockefeller Suit. He says Garrett Schreider honed his scam early by pretending he was an obscure member of British royalty. Now, remember, this was before the widespread use of the Internet, and he figured correctly that most people would just take his word for it. He was handing out business cards that said 13th Baronet of Chichester, and it had the crest, and he would hand out a business card and kiss the ladies' hands. And pretty soon he's a member of the community. And he didn't stop there. He made outrageous plans for the community, according to some of the women I spoke to who had long lived in the area. I remember Chris coming over and saying, I can get a chapel. We have a chapel on our property in Europe, and I'll have it sent over. And did you believe it? Chichester Cathedral, no less. Right, but did you believe it? And I thought, fabulous, that will look so perfect right here. (laughs) Settling into the community, the man who said he was a baronet discreetly rented a small guest house from a resident he met in church, Ruth Soas, better known as Dee Dee but kept that fact from most of the people who knew him. No one ever knew what house he lived in. He told me he was living on the second house from the corner on Lorraine and uh, West. He told me he lived on the corner. No one knew how he made money either. He once told me that he was a tea salesman, but there's no proof he was. Well, things seemed to be going smoothly for Garrett Schreider until Dee Dee's adoptive son showed up. John Soas, Dee Dee's adopted son, and Linda, his soon-to-be bride, were low on money. They moved into Dee Dee's house. Christopher Chichester is living in the back in the guest house. John is a computer nerd, Star Trek fanatic. Linda's six feet tall, a strawberry blonde artist who loved horses and painted fanciful unicorns. For two years, Dee Dee, her son, and daughter-in-law, Linda, and the boarder got along fine. Sue Kaufman was a friend of Linda's. Did she ever express any concern about Mm -mm. the tenant? Nothing. But your memory is that she thought he was creepy. Yeah, or just kind of like, just unsavory, like she didn't want anything to do with him. But Garrett Schreider told me that he had little to no contact with either John or Linda. Tell me about John and Linda. How well did you know them? I didn't. Well, I mean, I, I knew them, sort of, but not Well, really. you were living in that guest house for almost two years while they were living with yeah. John's mother. Yeah, they, they didn't talk to me. At all? Not really, no. And then in early February 1985, John and Linda disappeared. Initially, no one was alarmed since Linda had told friends that she and John were going to New York. The reason for the trip did, however, raise some eyebrows. Linda told Sue and other friends that John, the computer whiz, was applying for a secret government mission. Did Linda tell you what government agency was hiring her husband? She just said the government and it's top secret and I can't tell you anymore. At any point, did Linda seem worried about this trip to New York or about this job that her husband was offered? Did she didn't say how he got offered the job? No, that's that's what's you know in in hindsight, it's like why didn't I ask more questions? But I didn't know she was going to disappear. 
In retrospect, there were many questions that could have been asked about Christopher Chichester XIII. Why was a British baronet suddenly in San Marino? Was he seriously going to ship an entire chapel over from England? Why did it seem like no one knew where he lived, especially in such a small town? Well, their questions would have to wait, because about three months after Linda and John Soas disappeared, so did Christopher Chichester. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. The time is now May 1985. About three months after Linda and John Soas disappeared, so did Christopher Chichester. He simply vanished. And then a month after that, a man by the name of Christopher Crow suddenly surfaced nearly 3,000 miles away, attending church in Greenwich, Connecticut. Here's Mark Seal again. He gravitates to the most exclusive Episcopal church there, Christ Church, and he's passing out hymnals and meeting the locals. He was very smart to launch his lives at churches because, you know, people at churches tend to believe. He meets the minister's son. Chris Bishop is an aspiring filmmaker, and they became friends. Think of the nerve that took, picking up in another part of the country with a new name. But Garrett Schreider, now Christopher Crow, had learned that few people ever question a person who appears to be wealthy and willing to spend money. Years later, at Garrett Schreider's murder trial, Chris Bishop talked about the man he knew as Chris Crow. What projects was he working on when you met him? According to Chris, he was uh, the executive producer of the new Alfred Hitchcock Presents series. The con man had obviously done some homework. In the 1980s, that classic Alfred Hitchcock series was remade. And sure enough, there was a Christopher Crow in the credits. But of course, it wasn't this Chris Crow, because he was only 24 years old at the time. And yet again, no one seemed to question his story. He had studied up on whatever he was trying to do, enough to get away with it. By now, it should be becoming quite clear how naive and trusting most of us are. And because of that, two years later in 1987, Christopher Crow was able to pass himself off as a bond trader on Wall Street. In New York City, he met a man who worked for Nico Securities, and he was actually hired to lead an entire department of corporate bond salesmen. And how did he pull that off? He was hired you know, simply because of his name. Richard Barnett was hired to work under Crow, who again, as he had done in San Marino, claimed he was a member of British royalty. He said his name was Christopher Crow Mountbatten. Mountbatten is related to the Queen. When did you start having questions 
about his abilities? Actually, fairly, fairly soon. You know, he didn't understand the basic elements of, of what a corporate bond was all about. You took a job with a securities company as the head of a corporate, uh, bond, corporate department. bond department with absolutely no experience. But according to Garrett Schreider, despite his lack of experience, he was a great success. And produced a huge profit. The people who worked with you said you didn't know what you were doing. Well, that's their opinion. I nonetheless produced a huge profit. But that's not how Barnett remembers it. Never sold a bond. Never sold a bond. Never sold a bond. How unusual is that? Impossible. Crow didn't last long there. He was fired from Nico Securities. It was now 1988. Back in California, Dee Dee Soas, his former landlady, had died of a broken heart, thinking that her only son, John, and his wife had abandoned her. Crow thought he had put that life far behind him until he made a simple mistake that caused his long con to begin to crumble. It began with a gift that he gave his friend in Greenwich, Connecticut, Chris Bishop. When he said, hey, I've got this pickup truck. It was a production vehicle, a vehicle on a movie that I made. Um, I can't use it. I don't want it. Would you like it? It was a white 1985 Nissan pickup. A pretty nice gift. But when Bishop went to register it at the DMV, he ran into a problem. The truck belonged to John and Linda Soas, who had been missing now for more than three years. That rang alarm bells back in San Marino, and police there asked the Greenwich police for help. The San Marino Police Department was looking to find out if the new owner of this uh, pickup truck that was connected to this missing couple had information on where they might be because their case was still open. That's Lieutenant Dan Allen. He was a detective with the Greenwich PD back in 1988. Allen discovered that Chris Crow was also Christopher Chichester of San Marino, and that piqued his interest. So Allen tracked him to New York, where he was now living with his girlfriend, Mahoko Manabi, and believe it or not, working for another large brokerage house. When Detective Allen called the number he had for Crow, it was Manabi who answered. He said that he was a um, detective with the Greenwich police. And that's when she said, he's not here. So you leave him a message, and she said she would. But over the next few days, with his girlfriend's help, Crow kept dodging Allen. If you had nothing to do with the death of John Sohus, why wouldn't you talk to Detective Allen? Because Detective Allen never contacted me. He contacted Mahoko. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. He never gave her a reason for the contact, did he? But you knew what they were there for. No. Oh, you had no idea. How would I know? But here's what Mahoko Manabi said at Garrett Schreider's murder trial. He told me that next time he called, that, you know, he wasn't there and that I didn't know where he was. He had told her I wasn't a police officer, I wasn't a detective, I was a hitman out to kill him. And she believed that? And she believed that. Crow soon disappeared again, leaving Alan at a dead end. Did you ever meet him face to face? No. Did you ever talk to him on the phone? No. Christopher Crow went underground for the next three years. 
Fairly soon after uh, Detective Allen's call, we moved to another apartment. He grew a beard. I helped color his hair. He never came out of the building at the same time. He always walked down different sides of the street. During he which he chanced upon his riskiest, most outrageous alias yet. According to Mahoka and Manabi, they went out to a restaurant and he couldn't get a reservation. And so he just said, Rockefeller. My name's Clark Rockefeller. Suddenly a table appeared. The name worked its magic and would work its magic from that point forward. In 1992, he became Clark Rockefeller of the Rockefeller dynasty. And he unveiled it at church, of course, introducing himself to the congregation at St. Thomas Church on Fifth Avenue. Writer Mark Seal again. He would carry around a security device that he said was connected to the Rockefeller offices because he was very paranoid about security and being kidnapped, which is pretty gutsy because that church has real Rockefellers. But while he was pulling off yet another con in New York, his past life was creeping ever closer to him. In May 1994 in San Marino, California, the current owners who had purchased Didi Sohas' house began to install a pool, and during the excavations, a body was found. The body was found. It was inside of a uh, fiberglass container. This is Tim Miley, a detective with the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Office. Inside the container, the arms, legs, and torsos were wrapped in saran wrap, Hands were covered in bags, and the, the hands, feet, and head were covered in plastic bags. It was the body of John Soas, buried for more than a decade and so decomposed that the coroner couldn't determine a cause of death or even rule it a homicide. But bodies don't just end up buried in backyards, so it was suspicious. And because Linda hadn't been found she became a person of interest. And so was that boarder who once lived there, Christopher Chichester. However, investigators were completely stumped. Where was Christopher Chichester? The TV show Unsolved Mysteries even aired a story and posted a picture of Chichester on national TV. Police could only speculate about how the body came to be buried in the backyard of the one-time Sohus residence. But no tips came in. And when they didn't get anything back from that, then the case just went cold again. But who was then the main person of interest at the time the body was found? They were looking at both Linda Sohus, the wife, and Christian Garrishrider. But no one connected the missing Chichester to Clark Rockefeller, who was now hiding in plain sight. Novelist Walter Kern met Clark Rockefeller in 1998 and says that he never questioned his identity because of what he once saw inside his apartment. Standing unframed against the walls are what must have been 50, 60 million dollars worth of Mark Rothko's, Jackson Pollock's, abstract expressionist masterpieces. The artwork, which turned out to be expertly forged, fooled a lot of people. You wouldn't guess that 
the man is fake, the art is fake, the name is fake, everything, you know. And it certainly looked real enough to Sandra Boss. She was in Harvard Business School when she met Clark Rockefeller in 1993, and she later married him. They even had a daughter, Ray, in 2001. Boss really believed that she had married a Rockefeller, even though she never met any members of his family. Boss told people that he had fallen out with them, and she believed his story until she filed for divorce in 2006. And that's when she learned that she had married a ghost. Writer Mark Seal explains. She hires a detective, and he goes, we can find absolutely nothing on this individual. We don't know who he is. It was like he had materialized out of thin air. Two years later, Christian Garrett's writer does something that makes his carefully constructed life completely come apart. An Amber Alert has been issued for a girl abducted in Boston. Police say she may have been taken by her father. There is still no sign of Clark Rockefeller and his seven-year-old daughter, Ray. For six days, the man who masqueraded as Clark Rockefeller was able to elude authorities. How? By changing his identity once again. He arrived in Baltimore now as Chip Smith, a high seas ship captain with a daughter named Muffy. For some reason, I love that detail. On July 27, 2008, FBI agent Tammy Hardy was told that a Rockefeller living in Boston and going through a contentious divorce had kidnapped his own daughter during a supervised visit. It was very apparent that this was a well-thought-out abduction, that he had planned this for a long time. Garrett's writer finally got caught when a real estate agent who sold him a house saw the news and called authorities. It was now over for the con man, now in his 40s, but his legal problems were just beginning. The evidence will show that in his mind, the rules do not apply to him. Christian Gerritschreiter was charged with kidnapping. His defense team tried to argue that he was delusional, that he actually believed he was a Rockefeller, but the jury didn't believe that, and they convicted him. We, the jury, say that the defendant is guilty of offenses charged. He began serving a four to five year sentence for kidnapping. Meanwhile, authorities across the country began connecting the dots between Clark Rockefeller and Christopher Chichester, including FBI agent Tammy Hardy, who believed he was also a killer. Is he dangerous? Yes. Well, I have no doubt that he killed John Sohus. I have no doubt that he killed Linda Sohus. The problem was proving it. Investigators believe that Garrett Strider killed both John Sohus and his wife, even though they never found her body. And they didn't know the why or even the how. Did you know what you were getting into when you first started this investigation? No, we had no idea how bad it was, <laughs> how difficult it was going to get. L.A. County Sheriff Detectives Tim Miley and Dolores Scott had to find the evidence before Garrett Schreider was released from prison. 
and could leave the country. It took four years, four years of our lives, right? Yeah, yeah. It didn't make sense to me. Why would Garrett Schreider kill John and Linda Sowis? Con men don't often commit murder, and he certainly didn't have an obvious motive for murder. But Walter Kern wondered if murder itself was the ultimate scam. I don't think it was murder he was interested in. It was getting away with murder. You know, he was a fan of Hitchcock and film noir. He was steeped in the literature and the cinema of murder. The power to kill can be just as satisfying as the power to create. And a lot of these movies he saw have a plot in which somebody who thinks they're very smart commits the perfect crime. And it makes fools of everybody else because they get to go forth with a secret that no one else will know. Back in the L.A. County courtroom, I was dying to ask Garrett Schreider what he thought of Kern's theory. But... Aaron, don't put any words in my mouth. The more I pushed him for answers, the more he became upset, begging my producer, Judy Ryback, to get me to stop. Judy, Judy, we gotta stop this. I mean, the police and... You know, you gotta stop that, Aaron. It's too adversarial, Aaron. Judy, let's uh, let's, let's discuss that. He tried to get up to leave. Unfortunately, Aaron, we gotta stop it. It's not going the way I'd hoped. But I was able to keep him in the chair just long enough to ask... Did you kill John Sowes? No. Did you kill Linda Sowes? No, absolutely not. She's around somewhere. You believe she's still alive? Absolutely. Was Christian Garrett Schreider a murderer? Was Linda Sowes still alive? Find out in the next episode of My Life of Crime. I'm Erin Moriarty. This podcast series is developed by 48 Hours in partnership with CBS News Radio. Judy Tigard is 48 Hours executive producer. Steve Dorsey is CBS News Radio executive producer. Production and editing for this season of My Life of Crime by Alan Pang. Daniel Levy is our coordinating producer. This episode was also produced by Judy Ryback, Greg Fisher, and Paula Rosa of 48 Hours. Craig Swagler is Vice President and General Manager of CBS News Radio. And finally, a thank you to all of you, our listeners. We owe it all to you, the millions of 48 Hours fans. Don't forget to join me online. I'm at EF Moriarty on Twitter, and we're at 48 Hours on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. See you soon. If you like My Life of Crime with Aaron Moriarty, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey. On a summer night, Douglas Wagg Jr. lay motionless across a strip of railroad tracks before being struck by an oncoming train. I'm investigative journalist Delia D'Ambra, and my investigation into exactly how Doug died took me into the depths of a bizarre mystery. It was really hard to understand what was fact and what wasn't. A mystery that has led me from one suspicious death to another. Listen to CounterClock now, wherever you listen to podcasts.